Mary Hassan is the Cato Burns Senior Fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center in Washington, D.C. She directs the Catholic Women's Forum, a network of Catholic professional women and scholars, and she co-founded the Person and Identity Project, a new initiative that equips parents and faith-based institutions to counter gender ideology and promote the truth of the human person, which is why she's the perfect speaker for today. An attorney and policy expert, Mary has served as keynote speaker for the Holy See during the United Nations Commission on the Status of Women, addressing education, women and work, caregiving, and gender ideology. She currently serves as a consultant to the U.S. Conference for Catholic Bishops Committee on Laity, Marriage, Family, and Life and Youth. Mary speaks frequently in national and international venues on topics related to gender ideology, parental rights, religious liberty, and culture. She is frequently called upon to provide expert counsel on federal and state legislation, and in 2021 testified before the U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee against the Equality Act, and before the Australian Parliament, New South Wales, in support of parental rights. She has co-authored several books on education, including Get Out Now, Why You Should Pull Your Child from Public School Before It's Too Late. And her writing has appeared in a variety of policy journals, scholarly publications, and traditional media, including the Wall Street Journal, Newsweek, First Things, National Review Online, and the National Catholic Register. Among others, she is a frequent media commenter on both religious and secular matters. She's a graduate of Notre Dame and of Notre Dame Law School, and as if this wasn't enough, her and her husband also managed to raise seven children who are all grown, and now she has two grandchildren. So I hope you'll help me welcome to the stage Mary Hassan. Thank you so much. It is wonderful to be here. I have to tell you, we have three grandchildren and another on the way. So time passes very quickly. You know, I've been talking about this issue pretty extensively for the past four or five years. I started researching it about 10 years ago. But when I first started speaking about it, I would go places and people would say, well, I've heard of someone who has a transgender identified friend or my hairdresser's nephew's best friend is struggling with identity. And now every place I go, in every Catholic community, there are families that are really touched by this issue. And so I think one, one thing that's important to realize at the outset is that we hear in the media, we hear just generally in the culture, sort of a lot of happy talk around this idea of people coming out and presenting a new authentic identity that is at odds with their bodies. And that if we would only accept them, affirm that identity, validate their self-perception, that they would flourish and we would all just be fine. But the reality is far different. So I think it's important to acknowledge at the outset that there's a lot of pain around this issue, not just for the person, the individual, who is struggling with identity, 
but for their families. Because when you repudiate your identity as a son, for example, you are changing your relationship with your siblings, your parents. There's also pain for those who choose to affirm and validate someone down a transgender path, because there still is a sense of grief and loss. And in fact, there's a, a new business that has developed that is available to families who have someone who now identifies as transgender, and it will alter your family photos from their childhood so that that young person doesn't have to look at their past, that they can, they can sort of live in this idea that they always were the person they're now presenting themselves to be. But imagine what that does to a family. So just first of all, just realize there's pain around this issue. And so I think that's something we have to be sensitive to no matter who we're speaking to. Um, second, I've found in working on this issue that it's not a right-left issue per se. I work with people who are unbelievers, people who call themselves atheists, people who are radical feminists and with whom I disagree on almost everything else. And yet, we're drawn together by a common commitment to reality, to living in the truth about who we are, and a real concern for the young people who are being just swept away by this movement and, and brought down a path that really leads towards harm. So where to begin? I'd like to begin with Pope Francis because from the beginning of his papacy, he has made it a point to reach out to people who identify as transgender or people who are struggling with questions of identity. Some of you may remember this instance, I think it was 2013, there was a woman who in her mid-30s decided she was, she lived in Spain, decided she was really a male, transitioned, started presenting herself as Diego, and she's a Catholic. So she reached out to the Pope and she said, I'm being persecuted in my parish, particularly by my priest. And Pope Francis invited her to come to the Vatican and he met with her for an hour. And then he obviously didn't release the contents of their conversation, that was a confidential conversation. But he had this to say to the rest of us. He said, when people are struggling, when they're feeling marginalized, we accompany and we never abandon them. So to have that heart for others, to recognize their struggles, and to have true compassion that says, I will love you even if, as many, as, many of us have been, even if you're in a place that is not really where God wants you to be. But this same pope has had more to say. So this same pope calls this ideology that is driving the increase in people identifying as transgender and that's changing our laws and our cultures, he calls this ideology a global war against marriage and the family. In fact, he's called it wicked. And he, he specifically has written, he continues to speak about it and just is emphatic that this is destructive in particular to children and young adults who get carried along by it. So I think as Catholics, we have to hold both aspects in our hearts and in our minds. That genuine compassion and love for the person in front of us who's struggling and who needs to know we love them and that God loves them. 
but a very keen awareness of what's at stake and how damaging the ideology behind this truly is. So that's, that's kind of lays the groundwork. You know, one reason why this, this whole issue has come to the fore is because there's a natural inclination for every human being to figure out that question of, of identity. Who am I? In fact, you have to figure that out. You have to know who you are because all of the big questions in life flow from that. When you know who you are, what your, what your fundamental identity is, that's when you can, you can make decisions about how shall I live? What's the meaning and purpose of my life? What's good or evil? You have to know who you are. So the church, for thousands of years, has taught us very much about who we are. But it's also built into us in the sense of the natural law teaches us something about who we are. But Father will go into this in, in more detail, but let me just give you sort of the, <clears throat> excuse me, the Christian anthropology, who we are. First, we're creatures, we're created. And being in relationship with God, our creator, is fundamental. My identity is as a daughter of the Lord. We're relational. God made us male or female. So our sexual identity is a gift to us. It's to be received. We don't get to choose it. That's God's gift to us. We have dignity because we're created in God's image and likeness, because he loves us unconditionally. And that's a huge thing that's missing in today's culture, and in particular in gender ideology, because dignity is now believed to be conditional upon whether you are affirmed and validated or recognized by the law. As Catholics, we have a much deeper sense of where our dignity comes from and the fact that in spite of losing all your money, losing your, your health, lose, you can lose everything and you still have that fundamental dignity given to you by God. What else do we know? We know that we have a human nature. We have a design. Because we have a creator, he designed us a certain way. And so we can look at our bodies, for example, and we can see, as Pope John Paul II unpacks so beautifully, we can see a truth about who we are. Male, female, we're made for one another. We're a unity of body and soul, as Father so beautifully summarized in the beginning. But when we look at our bodies, we realize our reproductive system is the only system that doesn't function by itself. We're made for another, and males and females are made for one another. And males and females coming together in that beautiful union creates new life, and that's the foundation of the family. But Christian anthropology also reminds us of something else, that we're all broken, we're all subject to sin, and yet that's not the end of the story. Christ died, rose for us, we have grace so that we can overcome and, and live with all of those difficulties in our life. That's who we are as Christians. We also know Catholicism is a religion of faith and reason. We can look to science and we can see again God's design. So science affirms that truth that we are created male or female. And it's really important to understand the definition of sex from a biological standpoint because it's becoming very muddy 
in our culture these days with people saying, no, there's, sex really isn't binary. It's much more complicated. Not really, because in biology, the notion of sex is the design of the organism for a reproductive role. So our, it's whole body, whole person. So when we say someone is male or female, we mean that their whole body design is either to be the kind of person, the kind of living being who produces small gametes, sperm, or large gametes, ova. Because that's the only way reproduction happens. There's no alternative. Even if your body parts don't function or you're born missing something, it doesn't change the fact that you are a person designed to be one or the other. So it's become confused partly because we hear a lot about intersex disorders or what are really called disorders of sexual development. So I have a, a niece who has a heart problem. She has Down syndrome and she was born with a, a heart defect. That heart defect is a disorder. It's not a new way of being a human being with a different kind of heart, a new model. In the same way, human beings, when, when we're in our mother's womb, something can go wrong in the development of sexual difference, of male, your male-female identity. And that can be manifest in hormonal issues, uh, genitals, reproductive organs, or even chromosomal defects. But the point is, these are disorders of male development or female development. It's only an extremely small fraction of a percent that there really is the kind of ambiguity that the scientists and the doctors have to try to figure out, you know, what, what was God's design here? In most cases where someone is diagnosed with a disorder of sexual development, it's real clear. There may be some, um, an abnormality of the genitals, but it's real clear which, you know, which path they were naturally supposed to be on. So it doesn't negate the idea of the sexual binary. We're male or female. That's really what there is. And I think it's interesting how science, even though we have the muddying of the waters about the sex binary, at the same time, science is pushing to be more specific in understanding the differences between male and female bodies. So the National Institutes of Health, for example, a number of years ago, put out a directive to all the people engaged in clinical trials and said that you must specify whether your clinical subjects are male or female, even in animal trials, whether you're talking about mice or whether you're talking about human beings. We need to know if they're male or female because it affects the outcome. What they were finding was that, that for many uh, decades, really, researchers preferred to use males as their subjects for clinical trials to try out new medicines, et cetera. Why? Because you didn't have to deal with the complexity of the menstrual cycle. But lo and behold, they found that the male paradigm really didn't map on 100% to the female body. So women's heart attack symptoms are different. Uh, medicines affect us differently. So some of you may remember Ambien, the, the uh, sleep aid. Well, one of the things they found was that when women took that, all the trials initially were on men, but when you gave women the dose that worked great for men, you created all sorts of significant problems because women's bodies metabolized it differently. So sexual difference is real. 
and it's beautiful. Final, final little piece on that, there's a, a researcher out in Stanford who's doing a lot of work on, on the differences between males and females. And there have been a number of studies just really going down deep. But the one I love is uh, using imaging, you can map the brain connectivity. And using that imaging on unborn children. And they can look at how the two sides of the brain communicate with each other on unborn children and predict with certainty which ones are male and which ones are female. No socialization going on there. Okay, it's just a beautiful difference in terms of being male or female. And so that's what we have to not run away from. We are different, equal in dignity. But let's celebrate that and let's not give in to sort of cookie cutter stereotypes, etc. One of the things, one of the reasons why this transgender movement has gained some traction is that people realize there are, there's a wide difference in personality types and interests, even among males and females. So this graph, there's been numerous studies across cultures, and you see across the world that the predominant traits and interests exhibited by females tend to fall in a cluster. The same thing with males, and they don't entirely overlap. Males and females are different. However, a male whose personality traits or interests are much more like the typical woman is no less a male. He's just a male who's got those particular interests. And so it's really important to distinguish, particularly for young people, when they look around them and they say, let's say a girl, I'm not like the other girls. You're no less a girl. You are no less a female. But you are a female who is gifted with certain interests and traits and, and talents to be discovered. And let's, let's discover those and celebrate those, but don't repudiate the fundamental truth of who you are. And that's exactly what gender ideology does. It's built on a lie. And the lie is this, that we can be self-creating. We get to define who we are, regardless of our sexed bodies. So it's that dualism, looking at the body as if it's merely a tool or a canvas for personal expression. Your identity, because it's self-defined, can be fluid, variable. It depends on your feelings. Gender ideology does not view the human person as having an inherent dignity. Your dignity depends on whether others validate the expression that you are showing to the world. So for example, I was on uh, a nominally Catholic campus, university campus, uh, a couple of years ago on National Coming Out Day. And there were many students who were wearing t-shirts that said, no assumptions, no judgments. So I went up and, and asked a, a number of students separately, what does that mean? You know, tell me, I'd like to understand. And they said, looking at me, you cannot assume I'm a woman, I'm female. You cannot assume I'm male because who I am is self-defined and I get to declare it. The only way you know who I am is if I tell you. And the second part of that, no judgments. Who is to say that it is any better or worse to identify as a eunuch 
which is a new gender identity that is being pushed by the World Professional Association of Transgender Health, or genderqueer, or, or you know, there's a, an infinite number, really, of identities. So no assumptions, no judgments, because this ideology says, I, the person, self-defined, I have the autonomous right to do whatever I want with my body. And that means, too, that it changes how we look at sex. If sex has nothing to do with reproduction, and sex is only about pleasure, well, then it's your choice. My body, my choice. One people, many people, male people, female people, genderqueer people, who, you get to decide. That's your, your decision. And then family loses its coherence, which is one of the reasons why Pope Francis and, and Pope Benedict before him have spoken out so strongly against this ideology. Because when you deny sexual difference, you deny the anthropological basis for the family. This ideology can't deal with sin and brokenness. Instead of realizing we're all broken, we all need grace, we all need forgiveness. Everything becomes divisive. Who's the oppressor, who's the oppressed? And if you're a victim, you know, intersectionality says, the more victimhood classes you have, in a sense, the more right you have to dominate in society. So let's talk about some of the terms that are important to understand. Because as Catholics, we do not want to use the language of gender ideology because there are built-in erroneous assumptions about who we are as human beings. The most important concept under gender ideology is this idea of gender identity. What's gender identity? Self-perception. It's your interior sense, your feelings about who you are. And the official APA, American Psychological Association, definition says it's your inner sense of whether you're a man, woman, both, neither, or something else. The Human Rights Campaign Foundation has a publication aimed at young people. It's called their Coming Out Guide. And they say gender identity is your concept of self. In other words, it's completely subjective. Unlike being male or female, which you can test, we can determine whether you're male or female, this subjective sense of self can't be known from the outside. And it's not fixed, it's not immutable, it could change, it could be fluid from moment to moment. So gender identity under this sort of regime that we're seeing increasingly in law and policy becomes the dominant aspect of identity. So overriding even sex. So Title IX, for example, specifically says there needs to be equality, no discrimination on the basis of sex. And yet, written into it, it takes note of and says it's not discrimination to make sex-based distinctions about things like restrooms, uh, locker rooms, sleeping accommodations, or certain kinds of athletics where you've got physical contact and physical disparity. So it takes into account sex-based differences. But under the Biden administration, they're saying, no, sex doesn't mean sex. Sex means gender identity. But gender identity is defined regardless of your sex. So it overrides the reality of male-female difference and allows people to self-define who I am and to gain rights and privileges on the basis of those feelings. Gender expression is what you do on the outside. If I 
if I'm a, a female, but I identify as, let's say, a male, I might cut my hair short, wear more masculine, typical clothing, take a new name, pronouns. That's gender expression. And yet, paradoxically, uh, according to all the, the uh, gender promoting organizations, your gender expression doesn't have to match your gender identity. It can, but it doesn't have to. Again, no assumptions, no judgments. So there are built-in contradictions all throughout this. So don't feel troubled if something doesn't make sense. It's not you. So how does gender ideology make sense of the body, the fact that we have a sexed body? Well, it deconstructs it. it, it it tries to minimize the significance of it, and it does it in two ways. One, by talking about sex assigned at birth, as if that M or F on your birth certificate, or that male or female, is nothing more than an arbitrary label. And in fact, the children's books that promote gender ideology, down to pre-K, pre-K, kindergarten, first grade, they say things like this. When you were born, the doctor took a look at your body and made a guess as to who you are. But only you know for sure. Why? Because identity is self-defined. So male, female, that designation is merely a label. If you don't like it, you can strip it off, throw it away, and slap on a new one. But what does gender ideology do with the fact that we have a sexed body? It reduces that to merely parts parts that you can replace if you don't like. And there's a video you can find on, on YouTube of a, one of the most well-known gender clinicians out in California, Joanna Olson Kennedy, and she's speaking to a group of families. And, and she, she's not a surgeon, but she treats these kids, puts them on hormones, and then often refers them to surgery at very young ages to have their breasts removed. And, she was being challenged, or at least questioned, by people in the audience who said, but wait a minute, if you're referring a 13-year-old who, who says she feels like she's a boy, or she is a boy, and, and now you're, you've put her on testosterone, she's still unhappy, and she wants a double mastectomy, so you refer her to get her breasts removed, aren't you worried she's going to regret that? And Joanna Olson Kennedy's response was literally, if she wants breasts later, she can go get them. In other words, these are just parts. If you don't like your given parts, you can get rid of them, and we can approximate a facsimile of them. But realize, you know, people used to talk about sex change. You can't change sex. Sex is imprinted on every cell of your body. You can't, and then we've got like 30 trillion cells in our body. So you can't change it. So they're not really prominent, or they're, they're sort of presenting this false false promise that you can be something you never can be. You can't run away from the truth about who you are. So the, the overall conception of the person promoted by gender ideology is a person who's fractured all these different dimensions and a person who self-defines. The concept of transgender means someone whose inner feelings of who they are are at odds with the reality of their sex body. So they repudiate that sex body, but they could identify in many, many different ways that all come under the transgender umbrella, okay, or trans, uh, trans and gender diverse, they keep changing the language. But these concepts, these are, these are real pictures from a pride parade. 
with young people saying, I'm self-made, right? There's no room for God as creator. This girl holding a sign, I'm a real boy. She believes it. She wants it to be true. It's not true. It can never be true. So what we have here is a clash of anthropologies, two different visions of the human person that are just irreconcilable. And most people I know who go along with gender ideology, especially Catholics and, or, or believing Christians, but yet they've sort of bought into this, they don't realize that direct conflict. They, many don't really understand what happens in transition, that's one problem. But second, they sort of think, the person in front of me needs compassion and love. So I'm going to validate and, and just go with them, give them what they need, which is a really terrible paradigm. I've raised seven kids. If I had given them everything they wanted or validated and approved all of their inner senses of who they are or what was good for them, none of them would be here today, right? Kids need parents. They need adults who can draw boundaries, who can make sense of the reality around them, of the confusing feelings that they're experiencing, and lead them towards the truth, not someone who takes at face value that feeling and says, okay, we'll go with that, we'll go with that. And yet, that's the core premise of gender ideology. So the church cares about this because it's a false anthropology, but also because these are not just ideas, these ideas lead to a way of life. They lead to actions that are deeply harmful to the human person. And we see that just by looking at numbers. So until about 15 years ago, the number of people who identified as transgender was about 0.002% of the population. And that was considered a high estimate. There are estimates out there in the research from clinical populations that are you know, even more of a fraction of a fraction of a percent. So 0.002, 15 years later, we have a young generation, our older high school students, young adults, who now you're seeing seven, eight, nine, 10% of them saying I'm transgender or gender diverse. Just as we've seen this skyrocketing of people who more broadly identify as part of the LGBTQ community, which again, throughout history and generationally, was one to 3% of the population. Then it inched up to about two to 4%. And now we see this tremendous spike. That's not a natural occurrence. That's driven by the culture. How do we know that? One, because it's disproportional throughout the society. Some people will say, but wait a minute, now our culture is so accepting. So all these people, this 9%, there was a study out of Pittsburgh last year of high school students and 9.2% said they were transgender or gender diverse. So one rationale is, but wait, now we finally have an accepting open culture. People who otherwise would have stuffed it and, and pretended that, that they were somehow not transgender are feeling free to come out. If that were true, you would see across society at every age cohort you would see this proportional jump in trans identification. We're not seeing that. Okay, it's concentrated at the youngest levels, our, our teenagers and young adults, because youth culture is just swimming in it. Gender ideology is having an effect on all of us though, and I think this is critical to understand because it's 
forcing us to change our language. There are probably people in this room who have used that term, sex assigned at birth, without realizing, no, that buys into a premise that I'm not inherently male or female, but rather it's an arbitrary designation by society that I can go along with or not. Just the changes in language. So I have friends who um, have been La Leche instructors, and they have said over the past, particularly five years, their, um, the nursing community has been infiltrated by people who are promoting trans ideology so that even within something like La Leche, they're not supposed to talk about breastfeeding. They're supposed to talk about chest feeding. Why? Because if you have a young woman who repudiates her sexual identity as female, starts identifying as male, but gets pregnant and wants to nurse her baby, it's really jarring and discordant for her to talk about breasts, which are female, when she's trying to express and convince herself she is male. So you change the language. You call it chest feeding. But they're supposed to do that now across the board, not just if they have a, a woman who comes in who identifies as trans, but across the board. In the same way, The Lancet, you know, an authoritative medical journal, had a whole issue last year on women's cycles and uh, menstruation and, and things like that. In the cover, and, and for much of the first article, and a couple of other articles later in the journal, they did use terms like female and, and woman. But in the cover, they're talking about bodies with vaginas. De again, it's dehumanizing, turning women, females, into just these flesh machines that have certain parts. Deconstructing, everything's incoherent, everything is self-defined. And then, I, usually I have a slide of um, our newest Supreme Court Justice, remember when she was asked, what is a woman? And I took a screenshot during her hearing of her just before she answered that question. And you could see the look on her face. She knew what was at stake. Her progressive sort of credentials were at, were at risk. If she were to say, oh, I don't know what a woman is, a woman is an adult human female. So instead, she said, uh, I can't, I'm not a biologist, I can't tell you. Which interestingly, she sort of affirmed the principle, there is a biological difference, you know, but uh, I'm not sure she caught on to that. So it changes language, but it's also changing relationships. Again, because one of the things I see that's so heartbreaking is in families where you have one of the children, let's say an older son, who's identifying as female, and the kids become torn. The parents are saying, no, you're our son. You know, this is, we know who you are, you can't change sex. Whatever is eating at you and making it uh, feel untenable to grow up to be a man, let's, let's figure out what that is. But the kids, the other siblings are torn because here's their brother who now says he's their sister. They're at school or they're out together. Are they supposed to call him their sister? They don't want to hurt their brother's feelings, but they know it's not right. It's very confusing because it changes everything. This image here is actually of a boy who decided he was a girl and the mom was supportive, and then the mom decided she was not a, a female, but she was a male too. So she, she became not mom, but dad to a son who was now a daughter. It, you know, it's just, just so confusing. It's, it's nonsense, really, but it's destructive. And I have to say, this is intentional.
because when you read the academic literature, the queer theory and, and things like that, it specifically says that, that it is one of the objectives to dismantle structures of oppression, including the family. So you have to repudiate heteronormativity, the idea that males and females are made one for another and, and um, that's the normal course of, of human history and cis-normativity, the idea that your self-perception should match your body. Cisgender is another word never to use. It's a made-up term to normalize the idea of transgender, to say a person might be either transgender, that means they identify in a way that's at odds with their body, or they might be cisgender, they identify as a way, cis means same, that aligns with their body. And part of that stems back to what happened in the psychological sciences. So the APA was under a lot of political pressure in the 70s and 80s in dealing with this issue. And so no new research, nothing. They just changed their posture to say there's nothing pathological about identifying in a way that is at odds with your body. Through the 60s and the early 70s, if you look at the psychological literature, you will see words like delusion mental health issue, you know, serious disassociation, recognizing that it's not a healthy thing for a person to repudiate the fact of their body and to try to live in an alternate reality. But for political reasons, that has shifted. And that's one of the problems across our culture. You cannot say politically that it's better for a person to have their feelings align with their body or if their feelings get out of alignment, that you work on the feelings, not changing the body. That's no longer tenable in the mental health professions. You have to have this, this pretend neutrality. We're seeing this throughout the culture, too, and, and we all experience this, right? The, the pronouns, the, the bathrooms, we've seen the males in sports. Um, but we have to appreciate just how, how um, pervasive this is in youth culture. This is a busy slide because that's how it is for our kids. They are bombarded in entertainment, social media, just all aspects of youth culture. It's coming at them and it is intentional. How do we know? Because the content creators have told us so, that they aim to elevate the profile of LGBTQ, but particularly trans and gender diverse identities, to normalize them. So it's, it's a purposeful, uh, intention there. It's important in particular, and I want to spend a little bit of time on this, to realize that there are three ways in particular that young people are affected. Through schools, social media, and through the medical and counseling professions. So quickly on schools, the Biden administration is all in on gender ideology. They have adopted the position both legally and in, as a matter of policy and rhetoric and narrative that Gender identity defines who we are. In other words, your self-perception is who you are, regardless of the truth of your body. And that gender identity has privileged status over the reality of sex. So that comes through, they had uh, regulations that were proposed, they just took uh, an overwhelming amount of feedback, which the good thing is that's gonna gum up the works before they can finalize these, these regulations. But what their intent is, is to require schools, anyone who takes federal money in any way, which could be that you have uh, a child in your, in your Catholic school who gets a free lunch paid for by the state, 
that they're going to require that the schools either forfeit their, their federal dollars or they comply with this gender identity regime, which means acknowledging people's self-declared identities. It means granting access to facilities on the basis of this declared identity. Um, it means compelling teachers to validate that. In other words, compelled speech. It also means they've invented this, this right of confidentiality of children as against their own parents. The children have a right to keep that gender identity private if they don't want it shared with their parents. And therefore, the school has an obligation not to share it with the parents. So this is coming down from the federal level. What we're seeing in the schools in general is that uh, people worry a lot about curriculum. And, and it, there's reason for that. In about seven states now, there's official curriculum that says you have to promote LGBT history, uh, sometimes LGBT inclusive, sex ed, things like that. But that's not where the real problem lies. The problem lies in the school culture and what is coming and is brought in from activist teachers. The last stat I saw was about a year and a half ago, a survey of, of public school teachers on this issue of, of gender ideology. And about half of them supported this and half didn't. The half who don't are keeping their heads down to try to keep their jobs because as we've seen in some high profile cases, they will lose their jobs if they buck the system. But the half that's all in on this considers themselves to be um, evangelists of gender ideology and that it is their job to make sure that they bring this into the classroom to the youngest children on the theory that we have to make it safe and welcoming for any child because any child might be, quote, transgender. Again, no child is transgender. Every child is either male or female. Some children are experiencing pain and confusion around their identity, but they're not suddenly no longer male or female. There is no construction. There is no type of additional person called a trans child. There's only confused and hurting children. So the false anthropology in particular is coming through not just the media type things, Disney, et cetera, but children's books in your school library, in your, your public library. And you have to look for the language. It's a false anthropology. These are um, children's books, again, aimed pre-K, kindergarten, first, second grade. These are the ideas they're pushing. You can see that false anthropology. You know who you are based on your feelings. Adults just guess. You declare it, and then it's, it's the adult's job to affirm, validate it, and to facilitate your transition. In fact, there's something called gender-inclusive puberty education, which many educators are being trained on. And again, it's outside the curriculum. It's an attitude and an approach they bring into the school that says they talk about people with penises and people with vaginas, not or bodies with vaginas as opposed to male, female. But they also normalize the idea that some people need hormones to become who they are. And some people will, uh, you, if you have uh, girls who have a penis, well, later they can also have surgery if they decide to change their bodies. In other words, they're normalizing this whole transgender uh, regime. And it, it, so it comes in. These additional two books, some of you may have heard the controversies, just aimed at the middle school and high school level 
the idea is librarians, school librarians, regular librarians, and sometimes teachers say, we have to make sure we have literature that allows young people who are LGBTQ, in particular here, transgender or queer, uh, to recognize themselves. These books are pornographic. I mean, literally, they show all sorts of kinds of sex acts that are deviant sex acts, but they're trying to normalize it for children. And if you don't, if you haven't looked at the books, I'm not saying you should, it, it's kind of shocking. But when you just hear people talking about banning books, we're not talking about banning a book that's simply raising an idea. We're talking about images that, in fact, there was one mom in Fairfax, where I am, in Virginia, who came to a school board meeting with one of these books because she found it in the middle school library, and she started to read aloud and want to show the pictures. They shut her down, and they said, that's not appropriate at a school board meeting. Then why is it in the middle school library? So it's coming in. Now here in South Carolina, I looked up, you have, you're blessed that you, you have a law that doesn't permit, uh, you have to play sports according to your sex. Doesn't permit a male who identifies as female to, to go in girls sports. The governor also came out, there was a situation in Charleston where a middle school teacher during the health class uh, assigned a transgender book, I Am Leo, and the governor came out and said, no, we're not, we're not doing that. We're not gonna be promoting gender identity without parental consent. And most parents feel that way. They don't, even, even parents who personally wouldn't have a problem with it, in a sense, um, understand that it's not the school's job and that parents ought to have a say in something that's so fundamental to who a child is. But I caution you, it doesn't mean that children who are in your public schools are not affected by this. I assure you they are, because it comes in through the peer culture, it comes in through activist teachers, comes in through the, the library books. It's also, there was a uh, case in 2020, Lambda Legal sued over South Carolina's uh, sex ed provisions, which were specifically limiting what you could say about LGBT or alternate gender and sexuality uh, issues, and they got a consent decree, an order that said, okay, we're not gonna limit teachers anymore as to what they can say about that, because that's discriminatory. So it means that if you have a principal, a teacher who is activist-minded, they're gonna feel very confident that they can do what they want. And the other place it comes in is social-emotional learning, which I caution you, you know, it sounds wonderful, helping kids manage their emotions. One, it's intrusive, because here in South Carolina, twice a year, kids are given a quiz, 30-minute quiz, where they're asked about their own emotional self-regulation, their relationships with others, family relationships, friends, and supposedly the schools keep that information close to the vest, but what we've seen across the country is that this data gets, quote, anonymized and then sold to others, but it also is used by the teachers to make judgments about a child. And I was actually looking at the questions, and so uh, things like, um, I, I feel sad when someone is hurt. Well, maybe, maybe the day you answered that, you're thinking, no, not really, you're a third grader, and you think, well, I, I don't know. And you, you give sort of a middling answer. What's a teacher gonna do with that? Oh, does this kid lack empathy? Does this kid lack compassion? We've gotta do something. And so in South Carolina, there's a partnership with the mental health um, organizations, so there are counselors in every school, and the federal government has just 
approved a, a big grant of money to maximize the mental health counselors in the schools. And as a profession, I know many good counselors, okay, so I'm not, not saying everyone's bad, but I can tell you, in that school structure, the, one, the counselors who are brought in, or the straitjacket that the counselors have to try to practice within, is very much one that says you have to affirm and validate and you have to keep things confidential from parents. What they say to you in counseling is not something that you can turn around and talk. You can't pick up the phone and, and call the parents. So these are the things you have to worry about. And frankly, uh, you know, it was part of my biography. I wrote a book actually about four years ago, Get Out Now, because when I was doing this research and looking at what was coming then from the, Biden, or the Obama administration, just thinking, you know, how, how does a child get a stable sense of self when they're in that kind of environment, even if they're brought up in a great family? They either have to pretend they're someone they're not, or they're going to feel divided. I've got to be one person at school, one person at home, or they're going to get shamed and, and be tarred with the bigot label. So if your grandparents, I'll tell you, the best thing you can do is give your grandchildren a Catholic education because it matters, it matters greatly. So another key influence on, on young people is social media. Social media by itself is problematic, just apart from the transgender influence. We can see the data that they use algorithms to make it addictive, but the longer you're on it, the more depressed you become, particularly teenage girls, by a factor of like five. It's just, it, the link is clear. But then you have to worry about the trans-specific content. All of the social media platforms are just flooded with influencers, people who themselves, adults, who have decided to express their identity as transgender diverse, and they want to share it with others and influence young people. Again, make it safe for them. But you have all these narratives, all these sort of wise advice givers who are encouraging children that if they don't feel like they fit in, they feel like they've never, there's something about their body they don't like. The fact that they're asking those questions means they're probably trans, so they need to explore it. There are quizzes out there on the internet, you know, encouraging kids, well, just take a quiz. You want to know, are you transgender? Take a quiz. Well, the funny story, a, a dad um, whose son had identified as, as transgender, he came to him, his son was in his teen years, and said, you know, dad, I think I'm transgender. And, and the dad was wise. He said, look, I love you, we'll get through this, but help me understand. You know, what, have you, what made you think that? What have you been reading? What did you explore on the internet? And one of the things that his son told him was that he had taken this quiz that told him he was transgender. And the dad said, oh, okay, let me get that link. And so the dad took the quiz. Guess what? <laughs> the dad, he came to his son, he said, you know, about that quiz, it says I'm even more transgender than you are. Which made the son go, maybe, maybe I shouldn't trust that. You know, but that's the kind of thing. And, and the son eventually did desist or let go of this belief that he might be transgender. But that's the kind of thing that's out there. It's very seductive. And then we have the young people who have gone down the transition path celebrating and, and narrating their journeys of physical harm, but celebrating it as the source of their success. I don't, and this, this creepy guy here, this Jeffrey Marsh, is one of many 
influencers who specifically tells young people that if your parents don't accept you, you have a family here on the internet, your glitter family, they call it. You can DM us, you can be in touch with us because we accept you, we validate you, we love you as you are. Anyone who doesn't validate you is transphobic, et cetera, et cetera. So there are people purposely trying to do that. So it's just, it's toxic. Another thing people don't expect that going to the pediatrician's office is gonna be at all putting your child at risk. These days, unfortunately, even with good pediatricians, it can be because the American Academy of Pediatrics has taken a gender-affirming stance. Kaiser Permanente uh, and the American Academy of Pediatrics in general are encouraging what they call gender screenings, which means they tell pediatricians that when a child comes in for a strep throat, broken arm, migraines, or physical, you ask, at least if the child is 11 and over, you ask for time alone with that child. And there's good research that shows when parents have, are confronted with that question, the pediatrician is saying, look, I want to talk to your kid alone, find out what's going on. Parents almost universally assume that the pediatrician is going to turn around and tell them if their child is you know, doing drugs or, or involved in something else. The if you give permission, the pediatrician doesn't have to. They can consider that confidential, that you have given your permission. When you walk out and give them time alone, that's now part of that confidential file. So in that time alone, the American Academy of Pediatrics is encouraging pediatricians to ask probing questions. I see it says you're a girl. How do you feel about that? Have you always felt that way? Do you ever struggle with that? Same thing with same-sex attraction. You know, so this is, a, and my brother's pediatrician, he said the one blessing is that pediatricians are so busy. Many of them get these directives and they just say, forget it. So that's, that's the blessing, but you can't assume. You need to have a direct conversation with your own pediatrician and ask them where they stand on, quote, gender-affirming care. If they say anything positive about gender affirmation and gender-affirming care, that's not the doctor for your child. It is, it is that stark. In the past, most people who experienced this kind of confusion were adult males, like Bruce Jenner type thing, or very young children. But today, we've seen this tremendous rise in teenagers, particularly young females, although the rate of teenage boys and young adult boy, uh, males is increasing as well. And that inflection point is the rise of social media. Right about 2014, 2015, it's also when in the US, the Obama administration said to insurance companies, you have to start covering this. And when something's paid for, it's gonna be referred and promoted and people are gonna utilize it. So that had a role to play there. People will sometimes say, but wait, how can this be bad? You've got all these big names in medicine who are behind this, the American, um, American Medical Association, Endocrine Society, American Pediatric Association. And it, here's the thing, those are political lobby groups. They're not doing their independent research. The Endocrine Society is slightly different. The Endocrine Society came out with guidelines a couple of years ago supporting gender-affirming care in spite of the fact that when they did their evidence review, they said the evidence quality was low or very low and their own recommendations were weak and yet they're like pedal to the metal as a political matter. So you cannot trust those. 
and again with the World Professional Association of Transgender Health, which is the, the international body that's pushing this forward and pretends to be a medical association. It's not. They, in their latest, um, their latest quote, standards of care, which are not real standards of care, they pulled off the minimum ages for when children should be given hormones or, or surgery. And then they also validated things like this idea of eunuch. A male who wants to get rid of his, his testicles is now a gender identity. So transition is harmful. There's a, a young woman who's become a vocal um, opponent of all of this because of her own particular experience. She's from California. Her name's Chloe Cole. If you can find any videos, she's just done a tremendous job. But her own experience was that about the age of 12, she's on the autism spectrum, and you tend to see higher rates of kids identifying as transgender if they're on the autism spectrum. So she was feeling uncomfortable. She didn't fit in. She somehow, about by the age of 12, came across something about transgender stuff and thought, maybe that's the explanation. Started to believe she was a boy. By the time she was 13, she was on puberty blockers, 15 cross-sex hormones, 16 had a double mastectomy. At 17, she said, what did I do? And just realized, one, her mental health didn't improve, it got worse. And now she went from having a healthy body to a, a very unhealthy body. And she's open about the fact that when she urinates, there's blood in it, there's, because the hormones mess with you. It's not the way it's supposed to be, and you can see those, those changes there. But the thing I want to emphasize here is that when you look at kids who get drawn into this and they end up having, quote, gender dysphoria, that just means distress over the mismatch, they have a high rate of underlying issues. They're in pain, but it's not because they're, quote, born in the wrong body. 88% of them in clinical samples are already depressed, anxious. Many of them have abuse in their backgrounds, whether it's bullying, physical abuse, sexual abuse. Many of them have unresolved grief and loss. It doesn't have to be anyone's fault. A parent dies, a beloved grandmother, and they've never processed it, and they're, they're, they've got this unresolved hurt inside. That can make them vulnerable. So. These are the things that need healing, and yet our medical community is saying, we can heal your inner wound with hormones and surgery. We don't do that with anything else. So the other thing that, that is influential here in what's happening is because of social media and peer culture and these vulnerabilities, we have this phenomenon of social contagion. If, you, if you're interested, read the book by Abigail Schreier. She pulls on some research that was done on detransitioners and their families and found that in most cases, when kids would suddenly sort of come out as trans, it was preceded by times of isolation, mental health struggles, and heavy internet use. And then very often they were on the autism scale or had these, these other problems. In other words, there are precipitators and they, they want to believe there's an easy fix. If you are a teenager, you're not a, you don't have a long-range view. You want the easy fix. And if everything around you is telling you that the source of your unhappiness is that you're really trans, and if you only embrace it, life's going to be wonderful, and you see all these videos that show, oh, look at that, it's really wonderful, you're going to hope and believe that that's true. So just real quickly, because then I want to wrap up and give Father some time to go more into the theology. Let me just quickly go through these stages. Psychosocial transition. P 
people will say, well, social transition, nothing real is happening. You're just letting the kid use a different name, pronoun, changing their clothes. It changes how they think about themselves. You're validating a false belief. And when adults do that to children, it gives added legitimacy. So one of the things we've learned from detransitioners, people who went through the transition process and then detransitioned, is that in the beginning, they're often pretty ambivalent. They're unsure. And they're, they're looking, you know, how do other people see me? And when their own parents or other adults they care about, when they say, I'm trans, say, okay, what pronoun should I call you? That confirms them in this false belief. So it's not harmless. Most kids who socially transition go on to the next stage, which if they're pre-pubertal and, and coming up on puberty is puberty blockers, which was originally framed as just pressing a pause button, stopping development just so a kid can figure this out. It's not. Puberty is a whole body experience. You not only stop the development of genitals and reproductive organs, you are stopping their emotional development, you're hampering their bone growth, you're hampering their intellectual development. So these have long-term consequences, but perhaps even more troubling, when a child is on puberty blockers, 97 to 100% of them go on to cross-sex hormones. They want to go through puberty, and here they are sort of in this suspended um, non-puberty, and they, they still think they're the opposite sex, so they get pushed into the cross-sex hormones. A child who's never gone through puberty, who takes cross-sex hormones, becomes sterile. Okay, one, two. If you haven't gone through puberty, you take cross-sex hormones, you are sterile for life. So we're talking about kids who are 14 years old, which is the average age they're put on cross-sex hormones. If they were on puberty blockers first, they are sterile. If I went to a doctor and took a, my 14-year-old and said, hey, could you sterilize my kid? They would call Child Protective Services. But here we have a whole wing of medicine that is complicit in this. And then we have the surgery. And people will say, no one does surgery on, on teens. Yes, they do. We have the studies to show it. And here's one that shows, this was from 2018. It was a study reporting on doing double mastectomies on girls who were unhappy with their bodies. And you can see 13, 14, 15. And we've got other studies that show genital surgeries on young males as young as 15, taking out their testicles, flaying their penis open, you know, just horrible, horrible surgeries. So it is damaging. I show you this image for two reasons. One, you can see that's an image of an arm when someone tries to create a neophallus, a fake penis for a girl. They have to strip skin from the girl's arm or her leg, turn it into a tube and attach it. It doesn't work very well. It's got a high rate of complications, but it leaves them scarred for life. And that's, that's a tame picture well after the surgery has taken place. But I show you this other picture, which was a teenager who went through, uh, you know, cross-sex hormones and then had a double mastectomy and was celebrating that she no longer had breasts. But look at her body. You can see the marks of self-harm which is typical. So many of these kids are self-harming. In other words, they're in pain. And instead of someone saying, let's understand, let's figure out what's hurting and how we can help that, someone said, oh, you need a double mastectomy. You know, so it's ignoring the very real wounds as well as introducing physical and medical harm. Why would parents go along with this? because there's a sense of emotional blackmail. 
they're told their child is going to commit suicide if they don't. So if you go on our website, personidentity.com, we've got information on that. But simply put, it's not true. And even gender docs now have come out because they've been so alarmed at this steep increase and said, it's just not true. Kids are not going to commit suicide because you tell them no or because you have to wait. What is true is that these kids have higher rates of mental health issues that also have higher rates of suicide. So they are more at risk, but the answer is not transition. The actual number of suicides, this was from real data in the UK, was a fraction of a percent. Every child lost is, is a tragedy. But it is not this epidemic of suicide, and it's emotional manipulation to tell parents that it is. So a game changer has been uh, the outspokenness of these young people who have tragically gone down this path. They're called detransitioners, and many of them still very wounded, but are speaking out and saying, there's been a number of documentaries that have come out recently, just saying, this is an experiment. And, and one of the most poignant um, comments I heard from a detransitioner who had gone through double mastectomy and everything, she said, nobody ever asked why I hated my body. Nobody ever asked why it seems so awful to grow up to be a young woman. Nobody ever asked why. They just validated my, my desire to flee from my body and become someone else and took me down this medical path that has now caused tremendous harm. So the US is really out of step here. Finland, Sweden, the UK, France, uh, they've all sort of at least tapped the brakes. Some of them, Sweden has said, you can't, we're not doing puberty blockers, cross-sex hormones on minors anymore, except in a clinical environment, you know, experimental thing, and they haven't approved any trials. So the US, unfortunately, because money is a driving factor here, is not slowing down a bit. So Vanderbilt, some of you may have seen, uh, there, someone released, a, Matt Walsh released a video where they were talking about, hey, this is a big money maker. It is. You have a medical patient for life when someone goes through this. And we know, we've seen medicine get it wrong. Lobotomies, thalidomide, the opioid crisis. This is a medical scandal. Medicine has gotten it wrong, or at least official medicine. So what do you need to do? Speak the truth. Speak the truth. Because as Pope Francis said, um, accompaniment leads people to Christ. You don't lead people down a path that is towards harm. Okay, so true love means you have to love someone enough to draw boundaries and say, I love you, but I'm not going to facilitate this. I'm not going to support this. I'm here with you. I want to understand. But there's a truth, and I'm not on my watch. You're not going to hurt yourself. So it's a, it's a deeper love, and it's a more difficult love. And I have the greatest admiration for families who are going through this because it is, it is very, very painful. So some resources um, that we can talk about more later, but I encourage you, there are good resources in the church and to help families in a practical way. Everyone thinks, oh, we need therapy. There's practical things you can do. And that the book Desist, Detrans, and Detox is, is one of those things. So with that, I'll turn it over to Father. Thank you.